So I have to begin this morning with an apology. You see, I'm about to break my cardinal rule of preaching. I learned to preach from someone who taught me based on how he himself crafts a sermon, and he taught me his cardinal rule, and it's based on a story. One of his first appointments was to a rural church in just outside Charlottesville, and at a crossroads on the way to the church, there was a general store. The store was owned and run by a German immigrant named Werner. Every Sunday, this pastor would go into the general store to get a cup of coffee, and Werner would always be there. Eventually, Werner learned that this guy was a pastor and would greet him with the same question every week. Well, pastor, what is this sermon today? That's my attempt at a German accent. Werner would give this man exactly one sentence to explain the sermon. Sometimes Werner would say, das gut. And sometimes Werner would say, eh, you do better next week. The pastor said he got to the point where he was beginning to spend more and more time thinking on the version of the sermon he was going to tell Werner. So much so that he would think of that version before he would start writing the real version. But an amazing thing happened as he spent more and more time thinking about the Werner version. His sermons got better, more compact, more straightforward. And what this pastor learned from Werner and passed on to me was that a good sermon has one main idea that you can boil down to one sentence. Anything more and it's too complicated, lacking focus, and will wind up being all over the place. This morning, friends, I have no Werner version. This sermon will contain about four or five different mini-sermons. It will be all over the place, and it will be complicated. But before you go blaming me, we really ought to blame Paul, because it's his fault. Today, we finish our eight-week journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Paul ends his letter as he ends many letters, attempting to tie up all the disparate threads he's woven along with a laundry list of practical final instructions. And what happens in this closing chapter is that the, what happens is that the closing chapter tends to be all over the place, which means this sermon will be all over the place. My apologies. What we have in this chapter are some favorite and some of the most memorable, memorable verses of the whole letter, really of the whole New Testament, mixed in with Paul's conflict management and a thank you note, among other things. My hope and my prayer as we begin this sermon is that somewhere in this massive jumble of words and ideas, you can hear the specific word that God has for you this morning, even if that word is different than the word for the person next to you. Let's begin, shall we? Philippians 4, the whole chapter. Get comfortable. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, 
whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He said finally, and that was, we had a lot longer to go after he said finally. Don't think you know what that word means. As you can see, Paul says a lot on a lot of different topics in these final verses. So we're going to take it in chunks, hoping to unlock things that can speak to our lives even as we live nearly 2,000 years after Paul wrote this. So back to the beginning. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul begins this chapter essentially trying to play conflict resolver. Paul ended the last chapter on a deeply theological note, and his ability to go from talking about profound truths to telling two church members who are disputing to knock it off might be jarring to us, but it's also spot on for what it means to be a part of the church. As a church we move from talking about the secrets of the universe to the everyday moments seamlessly. 
We come in and we sing about the profound mysteries of God and grace and mercy, and then we talk about the weather and our doctor's appointments. In small groups, you talk about your families and about the incarnation. We take it for granted when it happens in our lives, when it happens here, but we should expect to see that reality modeled for us in Scripture. And here we see it. Paul takes a moment after a chapter about God's life-giving grace and our response to it to then ask two leaders in the church to get over their grudge and to love each other. And he asks another unnamed leader, probably Epaphroditus, it's a fun name to say, to see to it that it happens. I suppose if there's any application of this passage to our lives, it's that we shouldn't balk at placing the day-to-day experiences of our lives right next to the profound truths of the gospel. In fact, we should take Paul's lead and let them speak to each other. Is there something in your life that you're trying to work out? Is there a place of pain or anxiety? What could the gospel speak to that? How can the love and grace of God give you guidance as you deal with everyday issues? Paul continues. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. When Paul says rejoice here, and when we hear rejoice, we might be thinking about two different things. Typically, when we hear rejoice, we are thinking about an inner feeling, an outpouring of joy and happiness from within us. But what Paul means here could be more akin to the word celebrate, and celebrate publicly. In the Greco-Roman world, public celebrations were a regular occurrence. Routinely, public celebrations were held in honor of different gods. In Ephesus, in Corinth, and in Philippi, there were great festivals, great games held to celebrate their gods and their cities, and in particular, their new god, Caesar. Paul might well be asking, why shouldn't we celebrate King Jesus just as exuberantly? Would you ever shoot off fireworks because of the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus? Would we ever drop thousands of balloons in a sports arena to celebrate not our political nominees, but our God? Would we ever assemble down on the mall to honor the inauguration of God's kingdom and rule? Paul quickly moves from talking about celebration to talk about not being anxious and being at peace. And the two are more related than you might think. For the reason, that Greco, the reason that the Greco-Roman world devoted celebrations and festivals to their gods was in order to appease them. In the ancient world, there were hundreds of gods, and you had to walk on eggshells not to offend them so you wouldn't be punished. But the trick was, celebrating one god might offend another god 
So you lived in this tense anxiety, not knowing if you were offending the wrong gods through trying to keep other gods happy. Paul says, don't worry. For the God who has now revealed himself in Jesus Christ has shown you there's no need to fear God. This does not guarantee that you won't suffer, but your suffering will not be based on some trivial offense given to a lesser deity. Instead, your suffering is a sharing in the suffering of Christ, the suffering which won our adoption into God's family. Suffering is no longer the result of a narcissistic God's ill temper, but part of a deep mystery of the universe. Because of that, we can have peace. Now, this is not a peace like the Stoics had in antiquity or Tibetan Buddhists have now, that a peace that comes through detachment. Ours is a peace that comes through the assurance that our God is in control, that our God has won victory, and that come what may, our God loves us. And that is real peace. Before moving on, can I just say I love the command Paul gives us in verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How countercultural is that? It seems like all we hear about these days is bad news, the bad things, all the awful and the terrible stuff, fail blogs. It's what sells, it's what gets clicks, it's what drives traffic, it's what gets people, it's what gets people excited and motivated. But it doesn't help give us peace. It doesn't help to give us hope. How could you take steps to fill your mind with all the things that God has given us to legitimately be pleased with and to enjoy and to celebrate? But Paul continues, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, Philippians 4.13 is a pretty well-known verse that often people commit to memory. It's a verse that can give us hope in dark times, comfort in times of struggle, and peace in times of pain. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Many of us have heard that before. Quick question. How many of you knew it was actually about money? I'm about to blow your minds. Now, this verse is certainly about more than money. But the context of this verse is a financial gift that the Philippians sent to Paul and Paul's own financial situation. It seems that when the Philippians found out that Paul was in prison, they not only sent a friend in Epaphroditus, it's a fun name to say, but they also sent a gift of money as well. Paul wants to thank them for this, but he tries to hedge against seeming greedy. 
His fence-sitting might come across to us as strange, but it fights against a standard view of teachers seen in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you'd often find traveling teachers that would come into town and deliver their teaching expecting payment in return. We know that Paul came preaching, teaching, and starting churches, and it was in order to tell about the amazing love of God found in Jesus Christ. But Paul was also in these awkward awkward situations where he would then ask his new churches for financial gifts that he would take back to the Jerusalem church that was in desperate need of financial help. We will get evidence of this in the next section, that the Philippians responded to these pleas before. And when they found out that Paul was in prison, they sent him a new financial gift to help him out. So I imagine Paul was in this tricky place where he wanted to express his thanks to the Philippians for their generosity, but he also didn't want to get into this relationship where he is paid for his teaching. He is not like those teachers that will only do their work for for financial gain. He teaches out of love for God, which is why he wants to redefine self-sufficiency here. He talks about having plenty. He talks about being in need. And all of this is in light of how he's talking about rejoicing and being at peace. He's been up, he's been down, and through it all, he's content. Once again, this is in contrast with the way the Stoics in the ancient world would talk about contentment, or today the way Buddhists will talk about contentment. They say it comes from detachment, comes from not trying to gain any earthly possessions, comes from disengaging with the daily struggle. But Paul says that contentment comes from accepting what God gives us as gifts. Stoics and Buddhists would say that we should strive for less and less, seek less and less, attempt to attain less and less. Paul says that we should stop seeing what we have as earned by us, by our efforts. Paul says we should stop thinking it's on us, it's our job to hold on to what we have. Instead, we should see what we have as a gift of God to us. We should respond not with worry or anxiety, but with thanksgiving. And if we do that, we can face anything and everything. We can face all our circumstances because it's Jesus Christ who is giving us strength. The God who gives us all we have gives us the strength to face our burdens. Now, if you're a landowner in Philippi, a member of the upper class, And being a member of the persecuted church could cost you everything. Your land, your wealth, your status. It could be easy to want to protect those interests. It could be tempting to renounce the gospel and attempt to hold on to your material wealth. Paul says that he knows what it is to have everything. And he knows what it is to want. And yet through it all, he rejoices not in savings or investments or in stock options or in the increased value of his home, but in Jesus Christ. How do Paul's words and attitudes speak to a culture of discontent and cynicism? And in what ways would you find Paul's words to be challenging? Paul would have struck many as a human dynamo. His main public ministry lasted not much more than 10 years, but he achieved much more in that time than most people achieve in a long lifetime. He suffered hardships and faced dangers that most people cannot even imagine. Why was he able to do it? Because of the one who gives him power. 
He leaves it open whether one means God or Jesus the Messiah, but it seems likely he means God himself, the God, of course, whom we know in Jesus Christ. In his letters, Paul often speaks of the energy or power which he found welling up within himself and which, as he declared, all came from God. Have you found this to be true in your life? How have you found it to be true in your life? But Paul continues. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me gifts and aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus. That's a fun name to say. The gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So again, I have to apologize because I'm going to keep talking about money in a sermon for a long time. And I know that's annoying, but Paul is talking about money, has been for a long time. So I have to mention it here or else I wouldn't have any exegetical integrity. But what I want us to see is that how Paul is how Paul is talking about this monetary gift. Paul talks about how the Philippian church is partnering with him in the gospel. Paul ties all the monetary gifts together and takes us back to when he was first traveling through the area and starting churches. It's clear there were places that were receptive to the gospel, places where he started churches that wouldn't partner with him financially. It seems from Paul's description of things that financial giving is a further and final step in a symbiotic relationship. The Philippian church becomes partners with him in the work of the gospel. They shared all of their lives together, including their money. When you give to this church, do you see it as a partnering in ministry? We just sent a group of youth and adults to do mission in Costa Rica. Now, many of you can't get time off from work to go down to Costa Rica, or you can't physically go on a mission trip any longer, or you have children and you can't leave these children to go on a mission trip. Do you think about how you are you are equally in mission and ministry if you contribute to our youth's mission trip. That if you contribute to them, you are in mission as they are in mission. Very few of us can sing the way Marty can sing. If I accidentally left the microphone on during the music part, you would learn that I can't sing like Marty can sing. But if you contribute financially to this church, do you see yourself partnering in, in, do you see yourself in partnership with Marty inviting others to encounter God through music? That's how Paul defines partnership in ministry. The Philippian church couldn't go to Ephesus or to Corinth or to Jerusalem, but their money could. And Paul tells them that their giving is a partnering with him in spreading the gospel. Do you view your contributions here as a partnership in spreading the gospel? 
Paul finishes. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul ends his letter giving... Let's try it again. Paul ends his letter giving God the glory. My hope and prayer is that this sermon series has given God glory, and that through this series, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has been made real to you, and that you have encountered the love of God in Jesus Christ in your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, we give you thanks for these many words of wisdom, theological beauty, and advice that Paul gives to us in his letter to the Philippians. In this letter, we have heard beautiful songs about the work that you did in Jesus Christ to win us back for you. We have talked about what our response to you ought to be. And that as you have been faithful to us, we are called to be faithful to you. And now we hear about not being anxious, not worrying. That no matter what happens in this life, you will give us strength to push through. So as we continue to attempt to be faithful to you, to be disciples in a world that keeps turning its back more and more on you, we ask for your strength. As we live in a world where we are continually told to get more and more and more for ourselves, we ask for your strength as we try to love others and to be generous. God, we seek to be faithful to your word and to the incredible calling that you give to us in this letter. But give us strength. Give us strength so that we can be faithful to you. And help us, Lord, to rejoice and to celebrate you the way we might celebrate a gold medal winning goal in soccer, a Super Bowl championship team, the way we would celebrate the happiest moments of our lives and the happiest moments in the world. Help us to go from this place with the strength to follow you and the joy to celebrate you. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.